0: I'm Michael Krasny, and I am pleased to welcome you once again to another weekly episode of The Gray Matter of the Michael Krasny podcast. And we want to invite you to become a member of our Deep Dive interview and interactive global podcast, which covers an extraordinary range of intellectually stimulating and engaging topics and features, leading national and international figures, experts, and opinion shapers. And we urge you to sign up and become a member simply by going to graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. In this episode, we welcome internationally best-selling author and Grierson Documentary TV award winner, Luis Ferrante. A former high-ranking member of the Gambino Mafia crime family, Luis Ferrante educated himself and became a writer while serving over eight years in prison. His most recent book, the first volume in a trilogy on the American Mafia, is called Borgata, Rise of Empire. He's also the author of a number of other books, including Unlocked, The Life and Times of a Mafia Insider, Mob Rules, and Three Dark Crystal Balls, a book on neuroscience and peering into the future. He was TV host of the international discovery channels Inside the Gangster's Circle, and let me welcome Lou Ferrante. Good to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here.
0: Congratulations are in order on having an international bestseller in this first book of a trilogy, uh, which I read with great interest. And you have this respectable and successful life now. I wonder if sometimes— just to begin talking to you about your two lives. You're now a bibliophile. I can see all the books behind you. You learn to love books in prison, but you also love the mob life. I mean, you said publicly it was kind
1: of an adrenaline high sometimes, hijacking trucks and all that. Do you miss it? I miss the adrenaline high. I don't miss the criminal activity uh, and, and everything that goes with it, but I will never have that sense of wild freedom again, where, you know, that comes with lawlessness. I'll never have that super high that comes with a heist or hijacking. And that is something I, if I could achieve it in a, in a, in a nonviolent, productive way, it would be great. But, uh, I don't miss the criminal activity. No.
0: I want to talk with you first, before we talk about the book, uh, which, as I said, I read with great interest about your life, uh, because there's a lot to talk about there as well, and you—the ha- book, by the way—I should say has the ambition of being like William Shirer's uh, rise and fall of the Third Reich, no less. And you are a historian, really. I give you your props on that—deserved uh, uh, props. Uh, you wanted to say that there were no records of Nazism and what it did until Shirer, and you've put down a lot of records here, as opposed to all the popular culture stuff about the mob, because of the advantage of being an insider. But how did you become essentially an insider? How did you become a member of the Gambino family?
1: Uh, It happened in stages, but also things happened in quick succession. Uh, I started out as a car thief in my neighborhood. Uh, We originally stole cars just for joy rides and would ditch them at the end of the night and go home. Uh, Me and my friends who all came from homes, most of them uh, good families. And at some point or another, we had a lot of auto body collision shops uh, in, in uh, not in in my neighborhood, not far. The chop shop. Well, they were originally there was legitimate auto body collision shops that needed parts, and then at some point we started selling them the parts to the cars. And I eventually owned or uh, operated rather my own chop shop. So I would steal the cars. I would get a list of the cars they needed, meaning the cars they were repairing in their shops. And then I would give that. Uh, originally, I stole the cars, and then I would distribute the list to my car thieves. I enter. I was entrepreneurial. And, uh, my car thieves would steal the cars for me. And then I would go out, uh, chop them up and deliver the parts of the different auto body collision parts. And obviously they would pay a lot cheaper, uh, the parts they would pay for a lot cheaper from me than they would, uh, Ford motor company or, or, or Chrysler or any of the, even aftermarket manufacturers of parts, they got them a lot cheaper for me. So it made sense for them. And I started making good money with that. And at some point or another, I was in an auto body collision shop. And there was a giant toolbox that was probably almost as high as me, and the guy had said that these things cost a few grand. And I said, "Really?" And I said, really? "And he said the tools, are even they go for hundreds of dollars. The tools that are in the box, and the truck comes once a week and stops here. And the truck's probably got a hundred grand on it or more of of merchandise. And I said, "You want one?" And he said, "Sure." And I hijacked the truck, and that's that's when I became a hijacker. And through hijacking, I eventually got the attention of the Gambino crime family. You actually had an uncle who was a hijacker. It might have been in your DNA, huh? I wonder. You know, I wonder. I've thought about that a lot. I haven't written about it yet, because it's 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 a conundrum that I haven't figured out. But just like uh Byron's parents were were writers, I think, Lord Byron. Uh some of us, you know, have family that were hijackers.
0: How many former made men can talk about Lord Byron? I mean, that in itself <laughs> <laughs> impresses. Sure. Um yeah. But when when you got into the, the mob itself, you went through all the rituals and you went through all the swear-ins and took up the oath of omerta. And then when you found yourself in prison, you lived that oath.
1: No snitching, right? Uh, yeah, no, no snitching. I was actually, uh, I was actually, I would have had, I would have taken the oath, but I was taken off the street beforehand. Uh, so I went to prison beforehand, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me, uh, in the sense that um, by going to prison. I never had to take that oath. I never, it's almost like when Moses came down from Sinai the first time and broke the commandments, uh, when he saw everybody partying, they didn't have to, they didn't yet take the oath. So it was sort of, the party was excused the first time. Um, but that's sort of like what happened. I didn't have to take the oath. When I came home, I was offered the oath again. Uh, and I didn't, I refused. I didn't want to take it. Uh, by then I had educated myself in prison. Uh, and I was a different man and I, Oh, and I never snitched. I, I, even when I turned my back on the mob and said this life isn't for me, I had opportunities to still snitch and I refused. I just wasn't in me to. It was beneath my dignity to tell on friends I had grown up with. Uh, I had eaten in their houses; they had eaten in my house, and uh, and now I was going to send them to prison instead of myself. I could not ever ever grasp that idea as something that I could live with, that I could look at myself in the mirror every morning and 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 uh, and and go on through life with that. I had enough guilt. With the you know with the crimes you know considering all the crimes I had committed I had enough guilt from that but I wasn't going to put my friends in prison. Uh, that's that's just something I wasn't going to do. Does the guilt remain? To a degree, uh, I've dealt with it to a great deal by now. When it first when I first um, realized that everything I was doing was my whole life was a crime in progress and there were victims along the way, the weight of that was immense and I could remember laying in my prison cell wishing that the cinder block. Ceiling would just fall on top of me and end it, um, because I I didn't want to go on. I didn't know how I would go on. Uh, I didn't know that there was another way in life. There was that you could. This was all I knew, and I didn't like it, and I felt horrible about it. Um, but now, I at some point, I realized that the best I could do is do my best to move forward through life and do as much as you can to to be positive and have a positive influence on people. I get emails from around the world regularly from people who have read my books and said that they one book or another changed their lives in a positive way. And I guess that's uh, that's what life is about, um, you know, making, uh, making uh, lemonade out of lemons. And that, that's what I'm, I've been trying to do ever since.
0: Well, you've certainly achieved that. And uh, again, congratulations on the work that's behind you. And we're fortunate to have this new book, Ambitious, uh, because the first of a trilogy of a history of the American mafia, it begins with Sicily. And you take us back to the world of the Sicilians in the 1860s, And the fact is that most of the American mobsters actually came here escaping from the Italian police and escaping justice that was perhaps appropriately would have been meted out to them, but wasn't. Uh, Most of them arrive here. And you get us into the whole world of Sicilian feudalism and not only feudalism, but also the familial structure, which was essentially the structure of the
1: mob. It was. uh, So the reason why I started in Sicily was by chance the book came about while i was in sicily i was invited there to speak by the german media conglomerate axel springer and while there most of them uh, most of the attendees of this conference spoke german as uh, as a, uh, for obviously uh, and english as a second language and there was one gentleman who spoke fluent english and they had seated me next to him he had introduced himself as george and we had a the most wonderful conversation about history uh, Middle Ages, the Enlightenment, Renaissance, etc. And at, at some point we got up to the 20th century and we were discussing Europe. And he said, I fled Austria with 16 shillings in my pocket when the Wehrmacht rolled in. And I said, you're kidding me? You fled the Holocaust? And he said, I did. Uh, and we just went off on another conversation. And by the end of the night, he said, I'd like to publish your next book. And as it turned out, it was Lord George Weidenfeld, one of the most influential book publishers of the 20th century. And, uh, This came about in Sicily. He made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I began the book in Sicily because the American mafia, their deepest roots are in Sicily and Sicilian culture. And what I found to be the case, as you had mentioned, feudalism, feudalism, uh, at best, there were a few authors who touched on it and said that the mafia sort of came from feudalism, but it would be a word or two, uh, a word or two on the subject. And they would quickly move on to the blood and guts. Um, And I wanted to to really, really look at that and see if there were real strong connections that I could make uh, and not just say it in passing as everyone else did. So I spent about a year studying feudalism and read a stack of books on the subject, uh, constantly doing research. And I realized that there were so many immediate comparisons between the mafia and feudal society. And I list them throughout the the, 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 uh, early parts of the book, uh, showing how a feudal lord and his relationship to his vassals was identical to a mafia don and his relationship to his soldiers. Even the oath they took was very similar. Uh, And the next component that made the Sicilian structure uh, so ideal to, to, uh, to eventually give birth to a mafia family was the familial structure. Everything was family. The Sicilians believed in family more than all of the other places in europe as i understand it um they just everything was the family there really wasn't any it was almost like a patriarchal society where uh the 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 strongest uh, oldest male was the sort of the don of the family uh he was the boss and he he made rulings he uh sometimes even arranged marriages uh everything was done within the family and uh and it was interesting because a mafia family in feudal times, rather, there was also these blood bonds where uh, a smaller family became an extended family through oaths, where these quote-unquote fake blood bonds were created through oaths. And that's exactly what a mafia family is. It's it's an extended family. For example, the Gambino family, uh, whose patriarch was Carlo Gambino. He had brothers, he had cousins, he had uncles, he had nephews, all in the Gambino crime family. And then the rest of us were sort of his extended family uh, who were just part of the family by way of uh, association. So it was identical.
0: I'm also mindful of the fact, as I'm certain you probably are, of the fact that we went from feudalism to capitalism. And this is a kind of trajectory that you write about. These mobsters, when they came here, and I know you've had a lot of attention because there are a lot of analogies to business. Remember Calvin Coolidge said America's business is business. Certainly the mob adopted that ethos to a great degree. And they also, what I'm getting at here is, became capitalists and and patriots as well in America. Great believers in the American dream and in capitalism. And capitalism served them in ways as executives and managers and all of those kind of analogies. In fact, there's a lot in your work that shows how that really pans out, but I want to get back to to sort of the roots of the mafia again and and Sicily and uh, there, there's a sense of um, not only patriarchy as you point out, but and and familial uh, composition, but also the, the sense that many of these mobsters and, and you know you have portraits of all all the major ones: Frank Costello and Vito Genovese and uh, Carlo Gambino and so forth, uh, Alfred Anastasia. They were um, they were criminals to begin with. They, I mean, like I said, they fled Italian justice and came here, and then became criminals here. And they had the opportunity here, of first of all prohibition, and secondly the crash. That was really how they made their mark. Those two things, principally, as you point out.
1: Yeah, that's correct. One, uh, so there was sort of this huge uh, immigrant wave of Southern Italians into Italy, following the unification of Italy. The unification of Italy sort of absorbed sicily into it into the uh into the new italian state and the sicilians were unhappy with that they didn't want a far-off government in rome uh originally turin eventually in rome they didn't want them telling uh you know as i said these strong family structures what to do we don't really like listening to these people we've never met we've never they don't know us we don't know them they're going to conscript us into their army for because of uh um uh diplomacy gone awry Now we have to go fight some stupid war for them. Uh, We we don't agree with it. So a lot of them fled with the Italian Southern immigrant wave. At the same time, Italian unification came about. We abolished slavery here in the United States, the institution of slavery. And we were desperate for workers here in the States. We needed cheap labor to replace the slaves. And this Southern immigrant Italian wave responded by coming here and working all of the worst jobs. And along with them came the mafiosos. And a lot of them, as you said, fled justice. Uh, a lot of them um, uh, did not come through Ellis Island, uh, where there was uh, horrible uh, treatment of the Italian immigrants. A lot of them were considered idiots because they couldn't speak English and they were sent back. Um, and the Italian mafiosos usually were smuggled in on fruit chips and other different types, citrus fruit, sulfur, etc. All different kinds types of ships that would come here, they were smuggled in on. And they picked up here in different cities throughout the country. And there was an immediate network where they were all connected. A lot of them originally went, as I found, I always thought New York was the capital of the mafia in the United States. And it was Louisiana in the beginning. New Orleans. And the reason yeah. Why, yeah, New Orleans. That's correct. And the reason why was a lot of Southern Italian immigrants flocked to Louisiana because they liked the Mediterranean weather. They didn't want to get hit with nine foot snowstorms in New York. So they went to Louisiana, New Orleans. For work and the mafiosos followed them there and then um they realized that it was a complete lawless town new orleans one of the most lawless towns in the country and it had always been and i did tremendous research on that to show that there were dead people laying in the street for days the police wouldn't even pick them up the police were um involved in the bordellos uh, they were involved in the illegal casinos. So the Sicilians need only organize all these rackets, which they immediately did with the structure they brought from Sicily. And they became very powerful in New Orleans.
0: And they were also able to essentially rely on all the corruption and manipulate it. I mean, in brilliant ways, really. In genius. Brilliant
1: way. Absolutely. And there was, there was one mafioso who said, of all the places Sicilians migrated to when they left Sicily, and Southern Italians as well. A lot of them left Naples and Calabria. Of all the places, the only place the mafia became so powerful other than there was in America. Plenty of Southern Italians went to different places in South and Central America. No Mafia is there. Why here? And it was the corrupt institutions that we had, easily corruptible, that really, really were manipulated by these mobsters when they got here. And you, we talk
0: about the mafia. The mafia is in America. I mean, this is La Cosa Nostra in Sicily. I mean, it translated over here in a different way, but it became the mafia, right?
1: It did. And the translations were very, very apparent from our culture and the effect our culture had on the new mafia, the new American mafia. Uh, for example, the Sicilian Don, which came from the Spanish Don, uh, but the Sicilian Don was changed to boss. More so like a corporate boss, right? You know, we have bosses here. We don't have Dons. We have bosses. The boss is the guy you work for. We live in a business culture. We live in a corporate culture. So the Don became the boss. Uh, and also, too, there were other things. Voting. We never, there were no votes in Sicily. We're going to vote this, this Don in and take a vote. And there's a commission that has equal, everybody has, it's a round table. Everyone has a cast, could cast a vote. That's the democratic process in America, rubbing off on the mafia. Well, now, when
0: you mentioned Don's in America, um, the first question that I'm looking at here, and by the way, questions are welcome, uh, is from Philip, uh, who says, and thanks for the question, Philip, uh, can you conjecture on Trump's mob ties? Uh, I think of Don and one thinks of Trump. and he's. All, we hear now about the Trump uh, mob family. We hear about the Biden mob family. I'm interested in your perceptions on this, Lewis. He says, and you're from Queens, which is where Trump is from, Philip says in New York City it was known, and his early involvement in Atlantic City, a mob town, and then after that failed, the Russian mob began financing Trump, and the Russians involved were involved in Trump's election.
1: Please give us your thoughts. My thoughts on the whole, because uh, I have heard a lot about the Trump crime family, the Biden crime family, and I would say that obviously government is corrupt across the board. Let, let's let's start with that premise, and I think we could all agree on that government across the board, I think we can all agree is corrupt. We have senators uh, and Congress congressmen and women from both sides of the aisle who enter uh, Congress worth five or six thousand dollars in their bank account and leave worth six, eight million, twenty five million, thirty million. Uh, I don't know how we should ke- continue to call them public servants if they amass such fortunes while they're publicly serving us. let's let's start with that and and uh, but the next thing is, As far as Trump is concerned, in New York, as far as I know, we, the mob, I should say, not we any longer, but when I was in the mob, and I had a little to do with the construction industry, very little that I was privy to, uh, but the mob controlled the construction industry and probably still does to some degree in New York. So there wasn't a skyscraper Across the 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 skyline in Manhattan that did not rise with mafia influence. Any job over a million dollars has been proven in court when they busted the concrete club back in the 1980s. Any job over a million dollars had to kick back to the mob. You couldn't get concrete poured. They owned the trucking comp the unions that controlled the trucking companies. So if you stop the trucks to the construction site, the delays would cost the the general contractors millions and millions of dollars. So literally with the the with the, uh, with just the nod, uh, the mob could stop the trucks to any construction site at any point in time. Now, what the relationships were, as I understand it, were that the very, very big developers, and there's a lot of them, Trump wasn't the only one, the very big developers would not deal. They'd have general contractors and people who develop the projects for them. So they wouldn't be necessarily passing envelopes back and forth to somebody you know, behind a construction pile or behind a dirt mound. Those are the things that were da- you know, dealt with on much lower levels. Did it happen on the lower level? Absolutely. There was a Colombo captain who was a friend of mine who supplied all the rebar for the World Trade Center. I mean, the World Trade Center we're talking here. There was another Gambino capo, Louis de Bono, who was whacked, who did the fireproofing, the world trade center he fireproofed all the columns in there and may not have done such a great job but was also in cahoots with port authority who cleared him of any wrongdoing after the fact when they had a, a looked when they looked into it after the, the towers fell um but the mob had an integral part uh, to do with every major construction site in new york but once again if there was anybody who dealt directly with trump i believe that would have come out long ago I don't believe they dealt with the big, large guys in the top penthouses. I think they dealt with guys that were GCs, general contractors, on the ground level.
0: Well, in your book, you get into the mob's influence in the unions and everything. Maybe talk about that a little bit. How did they become so essentially powerful within the unions, took
1: over the unions? The union, uh, how I see it, and uh, and and I found a, a ton of evidence to support it, was when for instance and this was an italian jewish sort of alliance the italians and jews uh the jews fled eastern europe pogroms in eastern europe around the same time the southern italian immigrant wave was landing in new york and a lot of them mixed with each other they shared the same ghettos and same tenement buildings the jews and the italians and in fact excuse me uh, as you write uh, lucky luciano and uh
0: A number of Jewish gangsters, uh, Arnold Rothstein, excuse me, and uh, Bugsy Siegel,
1: were like close friends. I mean, grew up together as boys. The best of friends. Uh, uh, Luciano's best friend was Meyer Lansky, and their mentor, both of them, their mentor, and both attest to this. There's testimony that comes from both of them, and they they attribute everything they had learned to Arnold Rothstein, who was an absolute brilliant criminal genius. He fixed Uh, the World
0: (laughs) Series, the Blues. The so-called uh, Black Sox Series, uh, yeah. supposedly. He may
1: not. A, my my take on that was that he gave it a pass and then bet big with the information he had. He knew that he would whoever got caught messing with the World Series, which was as American as apple pie, was going to be crucified. And he told the guys who approached him. And then what I think he did was I think he passed on it and did not want to take part in it, meaning funding the players. They wanted a hundred thousand, to players to throw the series. So I think he passed on it as far as I could tell, and then made a huge bet with the knowledge that he had just gained from them approaching him. He knew they were going to find a way to do it and go through it anyway. So then he made a huge bet with this secret information. That's a certain, And people have said though, but he fixed it. And uh, he was in on it to the extent that he was approached early on but I think he was smart enough to pass and then made a huge bet because he walked away with a few hundred grand after the series. See, That's
0: where you're smart enough to give us a different interpretation than the one we're used to. I mean, you read Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby and you think Meyer Wolfsheim, an anti-Semitic portrait to be sure, who's based on Arnold Rothstein, absolutely fixed the 1919 World Series. This is accepted truth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I dug deep and I found, uh, to the best of my knowledge, he was smart enough to pass, but then made a huge bet on the side uh cuz he was he was eventually questioned and there wasn't enough evidence to place him as a as an active conspirator active co-conspirator uh, but he was known as the bankroll known for bankrolling quote unquote loss in his schemes and a lot of early young mobsters went to him when they had something to do, they wanted either to loan shark money or to get involved in one scheme or another, and they needed funding to do that. And that's how bootlegging happened. These two uh, these two Jewish gangsters approached um, uh, Rothstein, and they said to him, "Look, we need two hundred and fifty thousand. We got the Great Lakes set up to receive liquor shipments from Canada. Uh, we just need to to buy the fleet of boats and stuff and stop bringing it in." And Rothstein said, "Well, let me sleep on it. I'll get back to you." When he got back to them, he told them, "Look." Not only will we take in liquor shipments from Canada because the Can- the Canadians are gonna are gonna increase their prices uh, as this thing goes on longer and longer until they're strangling us, but I have a distillery in Scotland and we could send we could sell aged whiskey. And then by Luciano, Lucky Luciano being one of his early young proteges, he gave Luciano and Lansky the rights to sort of that you know to distribute that aged whiskey. So the rest of these people are making bathtub gin, bootlegging stuff and dirt dirt holes and stuff and these these overnight distilleries that they put together and here's Rothstein with aged whiskey and luciano and and lansky are the ones who have it so they cornered the market absolute brilliance and uh and then they end up going on to becoming so wealthy and then they loan shark a lot of the money out they open up casinos and then after prohibition when it's repealed we have the stock market crash and all of the banks go under. there's only a few banks remaining and they're very tight with their money so you can't get cash from anybody. Who can you get it from? Well, the mob is flush with cash coming out of bootlegging. And so you they get this start- whole
0: story down in your book, along with how they took over Cuba, Havana, how they essentially created this casino world of gambling in Las Vegas and so forth. I mean, it's, it's fascinating just to follow the whole trajectory of power. It's an empire, like your title suggests, an extraordinary empire. But let me get back to the question. I, and we got lots of questions coming in here question i initially asked you but how do they
1: get so much power over the unions oh uh, so the unions is interesting so what, what i was starting to be, begin to say was the the uh the italian and jewish immigrant waves what they were all really really desperate for just hard work they wanted to work and most of them were, were legal legitimate honest hard-working people both the italians and the jews 99.9 percent of the italians and jews who came here wanted to just work wanted an opportunity and they they most of the Italians went to the waterfront. Most of the Jews went into the garment industry. And uh, my my grandmother, actually, who was Sicilian, I could remember picking her up from a sweatshop where I see a hundred old ladies uh, on on sewing machines. And now this this the sight of this would be such a desperate picture. Uh, and I remember it clear as day. And we you know we'd have to go and look for her in a row and say you know Nana I'm here Nana we're here you know Mommy and Daddy are outside. Uh, and we'd pick her up. But, um, so all of these hardworking Jews and Italians who, who really, really dominated the labor forces in certain industries paved the way for the mobsters, the, the crooked Jews and the crooked Italians to organize them into a workforce. So Lepki Bucolta was one of the, one of the best friends of the mob. Uh, he was, oh, very so close he was a Jew. He was, uh, he was originally, I think he was a Russian Jew, Lepki Bukolta, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, he's, he's, you know, it was basically he came home from jail at some point or another, and his his friend uh, Jacob Gara Shapiro said, "Hey, look, you know, this is what we have going on." And Lepke, was a uh, he was entrepreneurial, and he started uh, he dug his his uh, his claws into the garment industry, and he started to really, really get deep into various unions. And how he did it was brilliant. Uh, the head of most of the unions at the time was the Amalgamated Clothing Union, uh, controlled by Sidney Hillman, who was who would go on to become. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, head of labor and an advisor during World War II. And Hillman wanted nothing to do with the likes of Lepke-Bakhalter. But Lepke-Bakhalter realized that if he was able to sort of bring drag Hillman to the table in one way or another, he could get in to the bigger unions. And what he did was he crippled the trucking union and the cutters union. The cutters was exactly what it says. They would cut materials then to send to the manufacturers who would then make dresses and stuff. Uh, And the the trucking union was just as it says. They would truck the materials. If you crippled this tiny union, the cutters and truckers, you could control the whole industry. And that's how he got Sidney Hillman to allow him into the industry. And then his best friends obviously were with him, Albert Anastasia, Lucky Luciano, uh, Tommy Lucchese, and they started infiltrating the unions along with Lepi Calta. And at some point or another, uh, very unfortunately, uh, the Italians and the Jews a cabal of Italians and Jews uh, betrayed Lepke because they felt he had just gotten too big, too powerful, and he was too wanted by the law. And they betrayed him and and uh, and gave him up. and so that they could take over then uh, his his basically his fiefdom in the Garmin Center.
0: well, the mafia were uh, equal opportunity employers. I mean, they worked a lot with the Jews. They worked a lot with the Irish. Uh, you write about Vincent call and. Uh, A number of other, uh, in fact, uh, Bumpy Johnson, uh, there were African-Americans who they work with and so forth. These figures loom in your book and play a part, Uh, but it was mainly Italians and Jews. And one wonders, uh, actually, I found myself wondering what drew you to Judaism? You're a convert, aren't you?
1: Yes, I am. Uh, What drew me to Judaism is a long story. When I was in prison uh, and I realized that first, everything I had done was wrong and I had this great weight on my shoulder, as I had said earlier. Uh, at some point, I had asked a friend of mine to send me in books, and he thought I meant short eyes, which is the, uh, I said, can you send me in books? And he says, sure, big boobs, you know, big asses, what are you into? And I said, no, I want to read a book, uh, short eyes with the prison terminology for pornographic magazines. And I said, no, I want to read a real book. I've never read a book before in my life. I was literate, Uh, I graduated high school, never went to college. The only reason I did finish high school was because my mother begged me to finish high school. She said, uh, you know, we have high school dropouts in our family and we have no college graduates. Please, please go to college and finish high school. I said, I'll finish high school. I can't go to college, mom. And I ran a chop shop through high school. Uh, But I asked for my first book. I read, uh, my friend sends me in, by the way, books that I was definitely unable to read at the time, which was uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars, uh Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler and a, a biography on Napoleon Bonaparte. And I said, what the hell? I called him Po at his house. I said, what the hell were you thinking? And he said, well, I went to the bookstore and I told the broad all about you. And that's what, uh, forgive me, the broad, the woman, that's what his language was, the broad. He says, I told the broad all about you. And uh, and that's what she picked off the shelves. What did you tell her? I said, he says, I told her you, you were short and bossy. So she told me these three dictators will do. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that's when I started uh, reading, and at some point or another, my mind is expanding to all of these different fields of science, law, literature, history, and I see that there's this big giant world, and I realize that I'm being punished for a reason. Philosophy—I read a great deal of philosophy from the ancient Greeks and on—and I said to myself, there must be a higher power because I feel like I'm being punished because I'm sitting here in a cell, but I also feel like at the same time as I make strides towards improving myself, I'm being rewarded because I fell in love with books. And now, you know, I read 18 hours a day and the day flies. And it's at some point I'm saying, this is crazy because I would have never found books had I never come to jail. So I'm almost thankful that I came to jail. So there must be a higher power behind this whole thing. Uh, And I started to, I started with my own roots, Catholicism, and I read uh, the gospels. And uh, eventually I read the Bhagavad Gita. I read uh, the Quran, uh, and I read the Torah and the Torah was the Old Testament for for Christianity and basically uh, I felt that that spoke to me uh, I felt like everything else that all them believing there was one God uh, so I I came to this with a belief in monotheistic religion I believe there was one God and of the monotheistic religions there was Judaism Christianity and Islam in that order but Christianity and Islam used, judaism as the basis of their religions which is quite fine but i just couldn't get to the point where i was willing to say okay we'll take the torah we'll use it for our religions and then we'll say god got it wrong and let's kill the jews and throughout history they both both islam and christianity have made a go at it killing off the jews so i felt that if god is so perfect how could he get it wrong when he picked the jews Maybe the Jews did have the right book and that's good enough for me. So I stuck with Judaism and it spoke to me. And eventually I, uh, I waited till I got home to officially convert just in case I was delusional in a prison cell and I didn't want to keep the Shabbos when I got home and I didn't want to eat kosher. Maybe that's easy to do in jail, but not so easy outside. So I waited till I got home and I was able to, uh, to abide by the things that I said I would. And, uh, and at that point I said, let me convert. And I did.
0: Well, here's a question about a Jewish gangster from Jerry and Aurora. He wants to know in the history of the mafia. Ben Siegel is portrayed as being murdered because he was skimming from his friends, but Siegel had plenty of money. Would he really cheat his closest friends, including Meyer Lansky?
1: No, and it's a great question. And I write about it thoroughly. Yes you in do. Borgata, Rise of empire. I do indeed, and I cover it and i and I expound upon my thoughts on the subject. But just in a nutshell, Siegel would have never double-crossed his friends. He was known as a loyal man. And you don't just then wake up one morning and decide, you know, there's things, there's signs along the way. And there were no signs that he was disloyal. And they said that he was thieving with Virginia Hill, who was his, his girlfriend. And they were stashing all this money in, in uh, Swiss bank accounts. And it's not why he died. What I found to be the case was there was a, he was desperately, uh, he was desperate to make the Flamingo, which was the hotel casino he built in Las Vegas, a success. And he dumped all of his money into it and he constantly got more people to invest in his dream. And he possibly, probably slash was mismanaging the hotel casino, but he did not want to let someone else come in there and manage it. It was his baby. He was not giving it up to someone else. And they begged him to step down, let someone else manage it. And he was, it was a horrible manager of an enterprise like that. He could build it. He had the vision. He was a visionary. He was absolutely brilliant in the sense that he built it. But then he needed to step aside. We all need to know our limitations. He should have stepped aside and let let a starchy suit run the place. And he did not. So that was part of the problem. But the next thing was he controlled a big part of the wire. And the wire was something that began by another Jew, Moses Annenberg, who worked with the Italian mafia in Chicago, started the wire, the race wire, which gave up to the minute data on on, uh, horse racing across the country. Late scratch muddy track, uh, w- sick horse, whatever it might've been. These are things that de- desperate information bettors desperately want to know before they bet on a race. So the race wire bookmakers paid a monthly fee to have that race wire service. Well, Siegel controlled a lot of the race wire in Las Vegas and Los Angeles. And he kept squeezing the guys who were, who were the bookies who were running, who were paying for the race wire, increasing their monthly service fees because he wanted to put that money into the Flamingo, which was failing. And at some point, they launched an internal revolt. They complained to the mob in Chicago. Chicago did not have the authority to kill Siegel. They went to Frank Costello. Uh, Siegel was part of Luciano's family, Lucky Luciano, and he was friends with him since they were children. And Luciano was in prison at the time. Frank Costello was his acting boss, so he was in charge of Siegel. And they went to uh, Costello, and they asked during the war during World War II. Hey, can we, we want to whack Siegel. And Costello said, absolutely not. He's our guy. He's loyal to us. We'll never let it. We'll never let you kill him. Well, Siegel's continued to have disciplinary problems. And once he started squeezing the wire, which Costello and New York needed as well. And they gave Costello a list of things that he was doing wrong. At that point, Costello threw up his hands and he had a little problem. He had a few problems in New York, which made him vulnerable. And he allowed them to go forward with the hit. So the hit was carried out by the Los Angeles mob uh, in, in concert with the Chicago mob. And the Los Angeles Borgata was a small Borgata, which was like a satellite Borgata of the Chicago uh, mob, which, which controlled like New York had smaller Borgatas that they, and that answered to the New York mafia and Chicago had some smaller ones too. And Los Angeles was one of them. So Los Angeles and Chicago carried out the hit on Siegel once Costello allowed it from New York, but it's based on the wire. It had nothing to do with stealing from his friends.
0: This whacking and killing that was done was done pretty prolifically. I mean, that's the image that we have, and to some extent, it's true, isn't it? I mean, you had a lot of uh, probably decent folk, like you said, who grew up maybe like you did in Queens with good families and went transgressive and decided they liked the life of crime for whatever reason—the money, the excitement, and so forth. But you had a lot of killers, a lot of sociopaths in the mob,
1: really, didn't you? Yes, I can't. I can't begin to tell you how many people. Uh, I knew and and liked slash loved some of them uh, who, who disappeared, uh, who or who were killed. I mean, it just happened. Because um, of all the th- wars th- going on between families. Yeah, well, the Colombo family was was a, a war that ha- transpired while I was on the street. So that that probably cost a dozen or so lives. Um, people I knew as well. Um, I was with I was with a, a gentleman named Joe Scopo at a wedding at Richie Gotti's wedding. And he and I were together shortly before he died. And I was driving home one night uh, from a card game. And I pulled over at a a quick stop to pick up the newspaper. And I saw Joey Scopo was dead. So, I mean, that's how you find out about these things. And you know, it it happens all the time. Um, Sometimes somebody will call you and say uh, so-and-so's wife is looking for him. And you just know that that's, you know, that's what happened or, um, but a I lot of the not. appeal
0: was that sense of brotherhood, that fraternal sense that you're talking about—really loving these guys, feeling that D.H. Uh, Lawrence called it blunderbruderstadt, a kind of blood brotherhood feeling.
1: It was. i do anything for him; he'd do anything for me, right? Yeah, I think Hannah Arendt wrote about it too on her on her on violence. You know, about these these blood bonds um, where people are willing to commit the worst violence, uh, and they all dip their hands in the blood. Everybody takes part in it. Uh, but this was. This was part of the life, but I will say this. When I was on the street, my mind was focused on making money. I was doing hijackings and heists and stuff. So I won't say that everything I was doing was violent. I'm not going to try to say that I was nonviolent. It's the reason why I had a lot of guilt later on. It was violent, but I never wanted to kill anybody, whether they were innocent or not, or whether it was somebody that I worked with or did business with. I I wasn't out there to kill people. Some guys are. They're very Machiavellian. They're very treacherous and they'll kill their best friends to take over their business, to take over a racket. They have a loan shark book, etc. And I did not know when someone dies or disappears, you don't ask questions. So if I heard "Gee, uh, Gino, Pat Gino's passed away or Gino disappeared, or Gino was found in his car. You didn't go the next day and ask everybody what happened to Gino? Well, why are you asking? You must be reporting to the FBI or something. They would figure. So you'd be the next to go. So you don't ask questions. You just assume, though, you have faith in the people above you. You have faith in the, the the people who are in charge of things, that they know what they're doing, that that person committed a crime against the Borgata. Well, they make which, it seem
0: which, that the FBI, like in The Sopranos and so forth, the FBI was hated. There was great enmity against the FBI.
1: And was that how you felt? Absolutely. At the time, I hated them. I despised them. I hated them. Uh, like you can never imagine— they had no business in my business, and you know they—they were our worst enemy. Now, now I would credit the agent who tortured me and and turned my life life upside down, as being instrumental in changing my life for the better. Wait you know, my, wait could, how did he torture you? Well, I mean, tortured me. I'm using a very bad word. I should say what felt like torture at the time. By turning my life upside down, by investigating every aspect of my life, by going to ex-girlfriends, by going to you know, every single person I knew trying to put me in jail, trying to get someone to cooperate against me. At the time, it felt like torture. Interfering and with your
0: business, basically, right?
1: He's interfering with me and my business and yeah. my family and my life and everything else. And I hated him for that. Now, now, looking back, I obviously know he was the good guy and I was the bad guy. I mean, it's clear as day. I mean, this guy was a magnanimous individual. I know exactly who he is. He was, a, I tipped my hat to him and his dog in pursuit of me. And by the way, I, I should tip my hat to him in another sense. He stayed within the guidelines as much as he turned my life upside down and as much pressure as he put on me, he never crossed the line. He never, um, you know, he, he could have, he never planted something on me. He never he called my father once and said to my father, "Your son is facing life in prison. Do you mind if I come over and talk to you about it?" My father said, "No, I don't know anything that my son does." And he respected that. He didn't go bang on the door and you know try to give my father a heart attack to put pressure on me. So we stayed within the boundaries. And that's why I could look back and respect him today is because of that because I think he did an excellent job. And he was instrumental, as I said, in turning my life around because I quickly realized at some point when I was in prison, that you can't beat the FBI. They have unlimited resources. Uh, if they want you, they could. Get, they will get you, and they're not going to stop until you know. They're going to keep coming at you until they put you away.
0: People assume that about the mob too, and yet, for example, they never got Sammy the Bull. He was a snitch. The
1: mob used to. The mob used to be like that. They're not yeah. anymore. And in the fact, mob there's been war.
0: a kind of general trajectory, hasn't there, of a decline of the mob. It's like, you know, a lot of rich people who made fortunes and then their kids become addicts or they don't do as well or they just don't have the drive, whatever it is. You can see that similar trajectory with the mob. It used to be ruling empire, like your book suggests, and then just going down. I got some more questions for you. You've destroyed a lot of myths in this book. I want to get to maybe one of them that's pretty famous this is Billy in uh, King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, who says it was widely rumored that the mafia managed selling all the cheese to pizza joints in greater Philadelphia. Is that
1: type of business the mob would actually get into? Is this how they work in the shadows? I had a friend, Frankie Mott's. Frankie Motz was short for Frankie Mozzarella or <laughs> mozzarella, as we would say. And it was because he controlled a lot of mozzarella. So, yes, they do. The old mob were more business oriented. The Castellanos. Uh, the Gambinos—they owned uh, Conti Kifu, they owned Blue Star Meats, they owned Western Beef, they owned Dial Poultry. All of these things we shopped in a supermarket when I was a little kid, and that supermarket was controlled by Gambino capo Pats, Patsy Conti, who later became my friend. You know, he was later he later became my friend, but as a kid, he was just an old man, you know, wearing a long trench coat and a hat. And he would come in there and he would, he would stop in the office for an hour and then leave. And we just knew we owned, we didn't know who he was when I was a little kid. And it turns out that when I get involved with the, with the mob, I meet Patsy Conti and I realize he's a capo in my family now. And I said, son of a bitch, I know this guy since I'm a little kid and never knew that, you know, I mean, we just shopped at their supermarkets, uh, their pizzerias, uh, that we ate their chickens. Uh, the mob had a deal with Frank Perdue. Uh, your older listeners will remember Frank Perdue and his commercials. Uh, I remember them when I was younger. Uh, he, uh, you know, he swore by his chickens. Well, Frank Perdue had a deal with Castellano, and uh, and he told the FBI one day all about it. And then he said, "But if you call me to the stand, I'll forget everything I just told you." And you know, he made it clear to them, "I'm not ready to testify about it, but I'll let you know." So many
0: people had connections to the mob. You're going to tell me Colonel Sanders did too? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm not sure could have. <laughs> All right. Here's Reed was once to know, are there any authors whose crime fiction you enjoy and feel is particularly accurate in regards to characters and stories?
1: To be completely honest, I don't read uh, any crime fiction. Uh, the only, I stayed away from true crime while I was in prison because I didn't want to look back on the life I led. Uh, and then when I was uh, forced to, research for the trilogy I just wrote. It was the first time that I said I need to get into true crime. And I took a deep dive and read I read literally hundreds, if not thousands of books on true crime, but all true. Uh none none of the uh no no fictional accounts I hadn't read. Um but there are some good true crime authors out there who uh you know who who are sharp. And I pointed out though a lot of them weren't connected as far as the mafia ones. They don't know enough about the life firsthand. They've never lived it to know if something is true or not. So a lot of myths are repeated from one author to the next because they use the previous authors as a a basis for their references. And oftentimes a myth will continue to be repeated over and over uh, and nobody ever corrects it. Well, I remembered when I was doing my research, when I was in prison and a lot of the mob guys I was away with did read true crime because they did like it still. I didn't, I wanted to get away from it. Uh, But they would say, I would hear a lot of people blurt, not true, never happened, bullshit, no way. And when I started to read the books myself now, years later, I realized that a lot of these things just immediately ring a bell in my head. This could have never happened. And the next thing I would do is dig deep to find out how the myth may have come about and then explain it to the reader so that the reader understands not just me telling you this never happened, but why it never happened, why it could have never happened, so that the reader sort of takes a ride with me and understands how to think like I do.
0: What's the biggest myth that you expose? There are a number of them in this book. I mean, it's become part of popular lore that people accept prima facie as
1: being truth. The overarching myth, I would say, because there are so many other, there are so many small myths that have to deal with biographical figures, but the overarching myth is that the mob is something romantic or sexy it's everything but that it's a dirty nasty world where every day is criminal conduct there are constant victims people die and when people die it's not there's nothing romantic about that either it's a despicable affair somebody is usually somebody could be hacked to death in a, in a bathtub his head cut off buried somewhere in a garbage dump pieces of him the family cries um, and then, you know, the wife is wondering why he's not coming home and where he might be. Uh, it's, a, it's a miserable affair. And that's the overarching myth that that hopefully will be debunked by the third volume. But you know who really,
0: in many ways, exacerbated that whole myth to a great degree, I think, was John Gotti, who I know you knew very well. And, I mean, the way he dressed, the way he comported himself, you know, he brought a lot of attention to himself. He was sporty. A lot of people thought,
1: hey, this is a pretty cool life, you know? Yeah, so I was i was uh, in John Gotti's oldest brother, Peter. Was uh, He was eventually the boss of the family, and he was a captain when I was on the street. And I practically lived in his house for the better part of six or seven years. I was in and out of that house every day. I have telephone toll records that go back and forth to the house every day. Uh, so I was around the Gottis during the heyday of the Gottis. And I had an a, up-close and personal view of of the family. And I will say this about them. They were all men in the sense that none of them became rats. Um, they, they stood up to the code Omerta, but John was very, very flamboyant. He was very, very, uh, uh, and you know, again, did I see him here and there? Yeah. Was I close friends with him? I was much younger than John. So it wasn't like I went to dinner with him and stuff, but, uh, you know, I'm by the club. He's by the club, you know, but again, I was in Peter Gotti's house. So I had a very firsthand view of all of them, including John and John's was something, his flamboyance, his, uh, his sort of after me, the flood attitude. There's a French saying for that after me, the flood, I can't remember how you say it in French, but it's a famous French quote. Uh, and you know, in other words, after me, who cares what happens? And John had that attitude and it destroyed the mob in a sense that everybody in law enforcement wanted to take him down. And in doing so, the, the Gambino crime family was decimated. But I will say this, John was a man's man who went to prison when he had to go to prison and he did not snitch. And I remember the night he was sentenced, I went to dinner with a couple of the Gaddis, and we toasted to him. I'll never forget it as long as we live. And we said to a man's man and we all drank our Cristal and he was a man's man, John. And they don't make him like him. What did destroy the family? What destroyed the family was somebody like Sammy the Bull, who said, why go to the pen when you could send a friend? And he decided that he was going to snitch and not only give up John Gotti, but 30 or 40 members of the Gambino crime family, which he, all, which he testified against all Many members. of whom probably didn't kill as many people as he killed, right? He killed more than anybody. He killed 19 people. He killed his best friends. He was, And now I'll tell you why I attribute, though, let's, let's not give John a pass on that either. Looking back, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, John made a major blunder by appointing him consulier. The consilier is the third ranking member of a family. The hierarchy is the three members, the boss, the underboss, and the consulier. That's the administration of a family. Sammy was the consulier. The consulier was always a guy in his 70s or 80s. He was the experienced guy who could preside over disputes. He would take beefs to the table and tell guys who was right, who was wrong. And he had a he had a record of experiences that he could rely on to guide his decisions. Sammy was a 40-year-old mobster. You want a 40-year-old guy telling 80-year-old men how they're supposed to conduct their lives? I mean, this was something that John made a major blunder by appointing Sammy the consul. Yeah, he should have never given him that position. Uh, you're supposed to appoint an older man. Uh, I think before him was, was, uh, Joe Piney or Joe Gallo, both of them whom were in their late seventies. And then you got some 40 year old who never did anything, but kill anybody. And he's the consul, Yeah. And if I have a beef, I have to go to him and he's going to decide on it. He doesn't have the experiences to bring to the table. His answer to everything is kill, 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 kill. That's not the answer to things. It's almost like if we live in a, if we live in a world, let's pretend we don't, but let's if We live in a world where diplomacy no longer exists. Everything is war. Everything is bomb. Can you imagine that world? And at times throughout history, we have lived in sometimes that. world. Sometimes
0: it feels like uh, we're living
1: that world. Sometimes I, mean, I think we may be. I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to offend too many people, but I think we are living in it now. You know, there are there are people. You know, that's not the answer to things. Let's where where are the niches? Where where are the uh, castle rays? Where are the Kissinger's? Where are the great diplomats that run around? Uh, Kissinger did shuttle diplomacy constantly. And uh, let me tell you something before I give him a pass, too. Yeah, don't horrible, give Kissinger a pass, please. I uh, won't give Kissinger East a pass. East Timor, horrible,
0: Chile, you know, I can go through.
1: And the Vietnamese alone. The Vietnamese uh, alone. And, and what's bombing what's, what's uh,
0: Cambodia, I mean, and Laos, excuse yeah.
1: me. Uh, horrible, horrible. And, and I'm not giving him a pass, but I will say the age of diplomats seems to have passed. Yeah
0: we got some questions for you. Actually, some really good questions. I thank those who are sending in questions. Here's Jeff from Miami Beach. Can you talk about your mindset at the time that made everything you did and being part of your cohort's actions okay? You obviously knew it was illegal, but I mean, the actual ramifications for the real victims.
1: Yeah. Uh, my mindset was the best way to explain it is it's like a cult. And somebody, if you're ever trying to get somebody out of a cult, you realize that their mind has been brainwashed. And they belong to this, this uh this cult, do or die. Uh their life is second to the cult. The cult is something bigger than them as an individual. And that's the best way I could describe the mindset. Uh, you're willing to kill or die for the people around you. You do believe that what you're doing now. Let, let's there's a there's a major distinction, too, just just to be clear. As bad as I was to people I didn't know, that's how a million times nicer. I was to the people I did know my family and friends. I would, I would do anything for. So I probably did more for my family and friends than most people I'll ever meet in my life. Because I would do If you called me in the middle of the night and you said, my daughter just got home and her boyfriend, she said, her boyfriend raped her. I was at your house in five minutes with a 45 automatic going, where is this SOB? He's dead. You know, I mean, this is this is what I'm willing to do for a friend because, you know, this is this is your daughter; it's my daughter. So these are things that normal people might not do. They might go, "Well, call the police." I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be up in the morning. I gotta hang up now. Good luck with that, you know. And they hang up the phone. So we were better in some ways, but in other ways, we were despicable creatures. But when your when your mind is so brainwashed and you believe this life, like an Ostra, this thing of ours is all you're living for. You don't consider the victims. You don't consider we're Americans, right? Okay. We we mentioned Vietnam. We bombed the hell out of Vietnam. How many of us lost sleep over it? I I I don't know. Not too many of us. Not too many. You know, I mean, yeah, Yeah. not too many. And it's a shame. But you know, that's like, you know, so you know, the the what we do, you don't really think about. You don't think about the victims. You're living your life, you're not thinking about the victims.
0: Here's Phillip, Yeah. says Joe Kennedy ran mob rum. The Chicago mob helped elect John F. Kennedy Havana's casino losses led to the Bay of pigs. JFK left men on the beach, Bobby Kennedy and Rico. The mob whacked JFK. That's his question. He builds up to that question. He wants to know. I mean, Did we've been asking my volume this for you too. Well, Sam Giancana was at one time yeah. linked right to the supposed yeah. assassination of John F. Kennedy, but we don't know to this day. Who really was behind it? There are a lot of questions with Jack Ruby. We could do a whole podcast on that alone.
1: We should. But you have any inside information that you would want to share at this stage? Yeah, the entirety of Volume 2 of my book, which is Clash of Titans, is already written. And it will be out this year. Now, Volume 2 deals heavily with every question that was just asked. Every question. And basically, in a nutshell, yes, the mob was duped into backing John F. Kennedy for president, even though Bobby and John sat on the McClellan committee that went after the mob and put them through hell and tortured them, as I use the word torture very freely, tortured them in the sense that they were pressured constantly by Bobby Kennedy. Now, when they wanted to run for, when John wanted to run for president and Bobby was his campaign manager, old man Joe Kennedy, who had tremendous influence and connections in the underworld. He assured them that my sons are going to move on to other things like civil rights and all kinds of other things and international stuff, that uh, we won't be going after the mob. My kids won't be going after the mob, he assured them. Bobby went became attorney general and immediately went after the mob, and at some point or another, old man Joe had a stroke. So he was removed from the scene. He could he could, you know, he, he, he was an invalid for the most part. So here you have now John and Bobby in the administration and the mob who did help them in Chicago, Sam Giancana ran the Chicago wards crucial to the election of John F. Kennedy. Uh, and they had influence with, with, uh, Daley, uh, in Chicago, the mayor um, of Chicago. Yeah. That's correct. Mayor Daly. And, um, and they also controlled Cicero. So a lot of the influential wards in a swing state, uh, w- w- were controlled by the mob and they did help. And they also gave, they dumped money into the West Virginia primary, Against I think Humphrey it was that's right uh, yeah they dumped money into the West Virginia primary through Frank Sinatra uh, and Frank Sinatra also assured them Frank Sinatra was very close with John F Kennedy uh, they they were quote unquote women passers where they passed women between each other they were both now known philanderers as we look back now we both know that Kennedy and Sinatra were known philanderers uh, so they passed women between each other and. Sinatra assured the mob as a liaison between the Kennedys and the mob that they'll never come after you guys. Don't worry about it. And Joe Kennedy was the other liaison between the mob and his sons. And at some point or another, Bobby won't stop. He's going after them. And the mob at the same time, in conjunction with this happening, the mob is tapped by the CIA to help kill Castro. And the CIA figured they must hate him as much as we did. They lost all their casinos. They want them back. Maybe if we get rid of this guy, we could then replace them with somebody who's friendly to the United States again, and we'll, we'll get, they'll get back their casinos, and we get back our oil and sugar, et cetera, and all the other industries that the, the American corporations had in Cuba. So at some point or another, the mob is working to kill Castro. So they make very, very strong alliances between the mob, the CIA, and the Cuban exiles, the frustrated Cuban exiles who did invade the Bay of Pigs and who were left there, stranded on the beach by John F. Kennedy, who, in certain ways, I did like; in certain ways, I despised. I have mixed feelings about Kennedy. Uh, but Kennedy was very likable. He was a war hero. He was a great man in many ways. I just think that particular decision, the Bay of Pigs, was a crucial blunder uh, to leave those men stranded on a beach after we promised them we would provide them with support, and they came out of the Bay of Pigs. They were they were in, they were imprisoned in a in a in a Cuban prison. Castro tortured them in the prison. This is a literal, literal use of the word torture. They were tortured in that prison, those prisons. And then when they were finally uh, ransomed by Bobby Kennedy, who negotiated farm equipment and medical supplies and money to get them out of there, they came back embittered. So you have Cuban exiles, the mob and the CIA who's beginning to hate Kennedy because they felt like Alan Dulles being the head of the CIA when Bay of Pigs happened. He was sacked after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, And then the missile crisis was another opportunity, another lost opportunity to invade Cuba. And then the generals, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, including the CIA, including the Hawks on the the administration, felt like it was another missed opportunity by Kennedy. These are the three co-conspirators, I believe, being rogue CIA agents, not the CIA in itself, but rogue CIA agents, rogue Cuban exiles, and mafiosos. And I detail I detail that very—I put together pieces that no one's ever pieced together before in my volume two. Well, let me mention my
0: friend David Talbot, who actually pretty much makes a case of the CIA's involvement in in the conspiracy and so forth. I always thought we would know who the assassins were by this point because somebody would just want to sell it to the tabloids if they had any inside information. But you do uh, very good research, so I'm looking forward to that book. I wish we had time to talk about your three crystal balls because that fascinates me too. I know it was just— Kind of a little hobby of yours to want to talk about, but I just want to give it a plug here, the idea being somehow that uh, in the nanoseconds uh, during a dream phase, coming out of a dream, you can actually possibly understand the future. That sounds pretty woo-woo, you know. I wish we had, maybe we could explore it in another podcast with you. But I've got a couple of other things just to add here. Reed wants us to know it's après moi, les déluges. Uh, uh, you were looking for the French before. I and do. And another question from Jeff, important question because I know you did a lot of prison work. You were actually awarded by Downing Street, no less, for the work you did in, in the UK for prisoners. And kudos for that. And Jeff wants to know: Was your prison experience somewhat privileged with fellow members of the Mafia, as we've seen portrayed in Goodfellas and elsewhere?
1: Yes and no. Yes, to the extent that we had, uh, we were able to buy people. So we bribed guards. We had better food. Uh, we did have, at one point or another, there was a big ring that was broken up in MDC, Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. I was part of that. I speak about it in my memoir, uh, where we were having uh, soft shell. It was before I became a Jew, obviously. I was eating soft shell crabs, lobster tails, uh, everything I can't eat anymore. Uh, but um, we were having them bring in the most, uh, the best delicacies we could think of at the time and smuggling them into the jail for us. Uh, eventually, the ring got busted up. But we also, you mean, you have to defend yourself in jail, no matter how many privileges you think you may have in sense of food. Or if somebody tries you, it's mano to mano. It's you and that guy. Uh, And I was in the penitentiary my first days in Lewisburg penitentiary, my very first day in population. The Aryan Brotherhood hacked to death and and murdered two uh, black inmates, African-American inmates. And uh, it was the uh, midst of a race war. I did write a novel while I was there about the antebellum south. I've not yet published it. I hope to one day. Um, but uh and it was to shield my mind from uh from all of the racism that was swirling around me. I felt that uh, keeping my head in the book, in the book I was writing would do that. Um, but yeah, there are privileges and not.
0: Well, you've got so much versatility in terms of your background already as a writer. Could you just maybe give us a quick little squib about this book that didn't get all sure. the attention that books about the mob and, and you know, your most recent book. Uh, but I'm kind of curious about it. And I think some of our listeners sure. might be as well,
1: the thesis. Yep. So it's, yeah. It's called the three pound crystal ball. And it's, uh, that was, a I uh, uh, I took from the three pound universe, which is the brain. The brain is approximately three pounds and it's the three pound crystal ball, meaning it could see into the future slightly, as you said, nanoseconds. And it basically it's, uh, it's the subtitles, the theory of sleep aid, and the unconscious mind's exclusive access into the corridors of time. And sleep aid, A period, I period, D period, is anticipatory incorporation dreams, which explains the, the the thesis of what I'm trying to describe and how it's happening. There are incorporation dreams that we're aware of, where uh, maybe the water's running and, and we're in, the, in our dream playing with a garden hose, or someone's beeping a horn, and in our dream, where in a, a nascar race and somebody just beeped a horn next to us. Well, I would have dreams from when I was young where there would be nanoseconds I would see nanoseconds into the future and my dream would incorporate something that was preparing me for something that was about to happen. And I urge everyone to read the book, The 3 Pound Crystal Ball, where I I lay out I what I tried to do as best as I could since it it, it sort of like flows into the the theme of paranormal for some people, I tried to ground it as much as I could possibly ground it in science, in neuroscience. And I used physics, I used psychology, um, I used the work of other other scientists. And I and my hope is that the technology that we're experiencing today is rapidly increasing so fast, ex- so exponentially, that I think once I laid the theory out there, hopefully in the near future, we'll have achieved the technology to prove the thesis. And that's my hope. In addition to being the historian of the
0: mafia, you may turn out to be a visionary as well. I wish you ongoing success. Let me also just say, because I want to wrap it up here and have to, that I want to thank all who joined us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all of you who will be hearing this episode on Apple, Spotify, or on our website, graymatter.show, where you can, of course, become a member and join our growing community, and that's Gray with an E. I want to thank our Grey Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Jeff, and Colleen. And a special thanks to this episode's special guest, uh, the author of Bogata, Rise of Empire, Volume 1 of Trilogy. Really a pleasure talking with you, Lewis. Many thanks.
1: Thank you, Michael. Many thanks to you
0: as well. Lewis Ferrante. I'm Michael Krasny.
1: Bandwidth for Grey Matter is provided by
0: Cashfly
1: at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.